Thank you, choir. A law enforcement officer happened to witness uh, an incident of road rage, I guess you would call it. Uh, some driver cut off a lady and she was rather upset about it and was uh, shaking her fist at the other driver and, and yelling and, and cursing at the driver and tailgating and whatnot. And so the, the police officer uh, pulled her over. He ran a quick check on her license plate and then went and asked her if he could see her license and registration. And he checked it over and then he said, well, I, I guess I'm going to have to apologize to you. And she said, apologize to me? What, what, what for? And he said, well, uh, I saw the way you acted and when I saw the fish symbol on your car and the honk if you love Jesus bumper sticker and the First Baptist Church license plate frame, I naturally assumed that you had stolen this car. <clears throat> I suspect that was chastisement enough for her. But even that little funny has a lesson in it, and that is going through the motions or displaying all of the right symbols doesn't always give an accurate picture of what's on the inside, does it? Jesus taught His disciples the same thing, that all the religious ritual in the world is no substitute for a pure heart, a right heart. I want this morning for us to look at the Gospel of Matthew chapter 15, some selected verses there on a singular theme. We'll start with the first two verses of the chapter, drop down to verses 10 and 11, and then read verses 17 through 20. So if you are able and willing, I invite you to stand with me as I read God's Word for us this morning. <clears throat> In chapter 15 of Matthew, beginning of verse 1, the Bible says, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And down in verse 10, it says, Jesus called the crowd to Him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. And then in verse 17 he goes on, Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> the Pharisees had come out to observe Jesus and... On this instance, they accuse His disciples, but really it was an accusation of their leader, which was Jesus Himself, for not undertaking the ritual washing, the, the purity, the cleansing ritual that, that they undertook before eating, before uh, 
partaking of food. They saw that the disciples, Jesus didn't do that. And so uh, there's a bit of an accusatory tone in their language here. Uh, let me read very briefly from Mark's gospel, uh, parallel to this in chapter 7. Mark provides an explanation, a sort of a parenthesis about this ritual cleansing. He says, The Pharisees and all of the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. This was a religious practice, a religious ritual, if you will, that was intended to convey a lesson about purity, about cleanliness, that would go beyond simply the hygienic nature of washing before eating, but rather to illustrate a spiritual truth as well, the necessity of spiritual purity and holiness. But that was a lesson that the Pharisees had either missed or forgotten somehow. They had gotten hung up on the action, the ritual, and forgotten about its meaning and its intent. The Pharisees, you could call the fundamentalists of Jesus' day. One enduring characteristic of fundamentalism is an obsessive emphasis on the letter of the law to the neglect of the spirit of the law. Essentially, that's what Jesus condemns them for in some of the verses we did not read between the first two and, and uh, down a little farther, 7, 8, 9, 10. Jesus condemns them for uh, transgressing the law by appealing to a, 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 a letter of the law. The, the spirit of the law was overlooked, caring for aging parents uh, in order to um, retain those resources for self-use by dedicating them to God. And Jesus told them they were transgressing the law for the purpose of their tradition. That's what the Pharisees had fallen into. A little later in Matthew, Jesus says they strain out gnats while swallowing camels. They pay particular attention to the tiny things and the important things, the big things, slip right past without their notice. The bottom line was they'd lost sight of what was truly important, what really counts when it comes to God and His desire for us as His people. And that's what always happens in a merit-based system of righteousness like the Pharisees had. It happened then, it happens now. Any religious pursuit is in danger of falling into that, creating a list of check boxes to check off to establish our own righteousness, our own status before God. Brennan Manning, in his wonderful little book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, talks about what it was like for him growing up as a Catholic back in the middle of the last century. It's kind of a humorous look at this sort of thing. He says there were two kinds of sin, mortal sin, which was the serious kind, and venial sin. 
Committing a mortal sin means knowing that what you are about to do, think, want, or say is really bad, but doing, thinking, wanting, or saying it anyway. Committing a venial sin meant doing something that is not really so bad, or doing something really bad that you don't think is really bad, or that your heart really isn't into doing. If your little brother is being a pest and you tell him to drop dead, that's a venial sin. If you shoot him dead, then you've committed a mortal sin. <laughs> and so he says, here is a routine situation that every Catholic of my generation had to deal with. For example, you're at a baseball game at Yankee Stadium on a Friday night in June of 1950. Catholics are forbidden to eat meat on Friday under penalty of mortal sin. But you want a hot dog. Now, just considering eating meat on Friday is a venial sin. Wanting to is another one. So you've not moved in your seat and you've already sinned twice. <laughs> what if you actually ate one? Aside from the risk of choking on forbidden food and getting punished right on the spot, have you committed a mortal sin or a venial sin? Well, if you think it's mortal, it may be mortal. And if you think it's venial, it still may be mortal. After much thought, you decide it's venial. So you call the hot dog vendor, you take the money out of your pocket, and you buy a hot dog. This is clearly an act of free will. You figure you can go confess your sin to the priest on Saturday night. But wait, he says, does a venial sin become a mortal sin when you commit it deliberately? Well, that's a chance you decide to take. What if you've forgotten it's Friday? In that case, eating the hot dog may not be a sin, but forgetting it's Friday is. What if you remember it's Friday halfway through the hot dog? Is it a venial sin to finish it? If you throw it away, is it wasting food? Is that a sin? He says within five minutes you've committed enough sins to land you in purgatory for a million years. <laughs> so he concludes, the simplest thing to do is not to take any chances. Stay away from Yankee Stadium on Fridays. <laughs> That's the kind of craziness that results when you create this merit-based system of righteousness where you, you have to do all the right things and, and say all the right things and check all the right boxes in order not to be condemned, to find yourself in a state of mortal sin, if you will. But what God values, and always has, is a pure heart. It isn't what goes into the mouth that makes us unclean, Jesus says, as if not washing our hands would somehow make us uh, ritually or spiritually defiled or impure. No, he says what comes out of the mouth is what makes us unclean. And that's because, as Jesus says in verse 18, the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. That's where they find their genesis. That's where they start. And so, in that respect, the things that come out don't so much make us impure as they reveal our impurity, as they reveal what is really in our hearts. There's an old saying that I've shared with you before. My mother used to repeat it to me from time to time. She would say, what's in the well comes up in the bucket. If you lower a bucket into a well hoping for a drink of 
clean, pure water and it comes up fouled or poisoned or, or muddy or, uh, or, or infected in some way, that's because that's what's down there in the well. If the well is fouled, that's what's going to come up in the bucket. If your heart is foul, if your heart is impure, defiled, unclean, evil and wicked, then that's what comes up and out through your mouth. Jesus says this is where the uncleanness is. Back in chapter 12, Jesus said to the Pharisees, You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So I don't care how many fish symbols and bumper stickers you have on your car, or how many Bibles you have on your shelf, or how many times you come through the door of the church in any given week. If anger and hatred and lies pour out of your mouth, then wickedness has consumed your heart. What comes out of your mouth reveals the state of your heart. Now these Pharisees were experts at looking righteous, even saying the right things when the need arose. They could pretend very well they're experts at hiding their wickedness. In chapter 23, verse 27, Jesus said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. That's why Jesus said what He does in Matthew 15. God sees what's inside. And Jesus recognized the the hearts of these Pharisees. And in fact, even though they were experts at hiding the, the evil in their hearts, it always and eventually reveals itself, doesn't it? What's in the well comes up in the bucket. The famous American author Nathaniel Hawthorne once said, No man can for any considerable time wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which is the true one. You might be able to fool a lot of people. In fact, you may even fool yourself. The reformer John Calvin said, The human heart has so many crannies where vanity hides, so many holes where falsehood lurks, is so decked out with deceiving hypocrisy that it often dupes itself. So you can fool others, and you can fool yourself, but you can't fool God. God sees. God knows. God knows what's in our hearts. The Bible tells us back in the Old Testament, in Samuel it says, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We look at the the outside. God sees the inside. And He knows the hearts of men and women. In Jeremiah chapter 17 is that verse, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, or desperately wicked, the King James says. Who can know it? Who can understand it? God responds to that question by saying, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. 
God knows what's going on in here, whether anyone else can see it or not. The Pharisees were all about appearances, but Jesus was about the heart. We see a lot of that same kind of thing going on in our culture, in our environment today. In fact, depression is up, suicides are up, in large part because so many people now, through the avenue of social media, can put on a good show. Everybody posts on their social media feeds, their Facebook, their Instagram, their, their Twitters or whatever, the, their, their vacation pictures. What a wonderful wedding it was. We had a wonderful time as we did this and how humble I, humbly I feel because I was given this award. Uh, it's, it's sort of the humble bragging thing that maybe you've heard about. And people look at that and they think, well, I must be the only one then whose life is a chaotic mess. I must be the only one who can't get the kids out of bed and to school on time. I must be the only one who can't figure out how to get everything done in my day. And it results in a, in a depression, anxiety. It's because people put on a show for the world, but things in reality are often very different, just like it was with these Pharisees. They were all about appearances. But Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What about you? Are you honest with yourself, honest with others, are you transparent before God and before the world? Or are you trying to hide and trying to cover up a wickedness that you know God sees? And so the scripture says, guard your heart. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount internalized the law. These things, uh, you've heard it said, don't kill. I tell you, don't be angry. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, don't cultivate lust in your heart, in your mind. He internalizes these things that we're so eager to create checkboxes out of because it's the heart where we really live, where we really are. So the scripture says, guard your heart. In Proverbs 4.23, above all else, it says, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. The heart. Where goodness or evil originates. Jesus said in our text, it's out of the heart that come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. All of these things come from inside and manifest themselves in our words and our actions. So the heart is where we need to focus our attention. Guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. A.W. Tozer said, The widest thing in the universe is not space. It is the potential capacity of the human heart. Being made in the image of God, it is capable of almost unlimited extension in all directions. And one of the world's greatest tragedies is that we allow our hearts to shrink until there is room in them for little besides ourselves. It's the danger we all face. Well, Scripture says, guard your heart. How do we do that? 
Can, can, we, can we somehow create what it is that God is looking for here? Well, the truth is, in our own effort, no, we can't. The human heart is truly deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The human heart can't be reformed. The human heart must be reborn. It can't be rehabilitated. It has to be remade. And only Jesus can do that. Jesus offers to do that. Jesus desires to do that. He wants to put a new heart within you. A heart like His. The popular thing to do at the beginning of a new year is to make resolutions. To say, well, I'm going to exercise more. I'm going to lose some weight. I'm going to learn a new skill. I'm going to take up a new hobby. But we don't need reformation. We need rebirth. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. It's not just about changing our behavior. It's been said, if you want to change your behavior, join the Marine Corps. They'll do it for you. They'll get you straightened out. They'll get you squared away. You'll be behaving like a Marine in no time or else. Jesus isn't talking just about changing behavior. It's changing a heart that results, produces the fruit of right speech, right action, right thoughts. If you want to change your heart, come to Christ. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. Charles Wesley, the great Methodist hymn writer, asked the Lord in verse, For a heart in every thought renewed and full of love divine, perfect and right and pure and good, a copy, Lord, of thine. You can have His heart in you if you will give Him your life. He will remake you. The knowledge of our own sinful wickedness should cause us to echo those words of David in Psalm 51 that we, that we read earlier in the service. Create in me a pure heart, O God. David was broken because of his sin with Bathsheba. He'd been confronted by it. He was broken. He was honest. He opened up himself before the Lord. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And in spite of all of David's failures, his sins, his transgressions, what does the Bible say about David? It says he was a man after God's own heart. Because he was honest with God. Because he, he laid it all out. He, commit, he committed sins and, and confessed them and asked God to create in him a clean heart, a pure heart. But the good news is God will. God will do that. He'll do it for you. Come to Christ today and you can go home today with a new heart. His heart. You can start the new year off right. Would you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess to you our
sins. We euphemize them in the things like mistakes, errors. We try to soften them, but God, when we're honest, we must confess that they are sins. And too often we have sinned against you, and we knew better when we did it. Mortal, venial, it doesn't matter. God, we have transgressed your desire for us and for our lives. By nature, God, our hearts are deceitful above all things, able to fool even ourselves. But God, I thank you that we can have our hearts reborn, remade, transplanted, if you will, with your heart. God, help us to be honest, to acknowledge our sinfulness, to set aside our pride and our our self-centeredness and instead seek to be what you want us to be. Create in us a pure heart, O God, and may that pour forth out of our mouths and our hands and our feet and our actions. May they permeate our thoughts with good things, whatsoever things are noble and pure and just and good. May we think on those things. God, may this year be a banner year, not just in our lives, but in our church, in our community, in our world. Help us, O God, we pray, for your glory and for your sake. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing.